Representative Isela Blanc. Hi. Good uh, morning. Thanks for telling everybody what time it is. Uh, <laughs> tomorrow is one year since you were last on, and I, I told you this off, but I, I wanted everybody to know. After your episode, you gave me so much confidence. You sort of like a catalyst inside me to to reach out more to people. I would write emails and no one would say anything. And then once you were on the episode, it really inspired me and pushed me harder. So then I was writing more emails every week, probably every day. And then I started getting people on, artists, people doing things around the community. And so, uh, yeah, I wanted to thank you for that because it was, it was a big thing. It was just, before it was just me and goofy friends uh, <laughs> talking about stuff, Avengers movies or whatever. Yeah, I thought it was, and I, I really appreciated you taking the time out because I know you're very busy. There was a term you used for, you don't want to say people in power. I think you used something like um, you were voted, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember, but people who hold positions uh, are busy. And so I want to thank you. So I re-listened to last year's episode and I had some questions, follow-up questions a year later. So here we go. Okay. Um, you said you buried trinkets in uh, the garden. Oh you know? yeah, my, my home in Mexico. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask what the trinkets were? Um, they were, uh, I specifically remember it was a small Barbie-like toy, and I mean, that's specifically what I remember, just little things that I played with, and, and I remember as I was burying, um, these trinkets in my mom's garden, I had this sense that I was never going to see it or them again. Yeah. And I was only six, yeah. which is crazy. That's, I... Couldn't remember where I put my clothes at six. And you were, <laughs> you were thinking of that far ahead. And another thing was that stood out when I was listening to it. I sounded like an utter buffoon. That was one of them. No, um, <laughs> no. You, you brought up how a lot of your colleagues would be threatened or kind of offended by your mere presence. That was one thing you said, your mere presence. And because you're uh, a woman and a woman of color, how has it been? And has it changed at all? <laughs> um, has it gotten better? Not at um, all no, no i mean i think i think the good news is i inspire a level of fear in them mm -hmm. uh to me that's kind of interesting only because they don't ever know what i'm going to do or what i'm going to say other than what is certain is that i will fight so a week ago i'm on the education committee and we were listening to a few bills and one of the things that I kind of decided in this legislative session is I'm kind of tired of the incongruency, the hypocrisy, and people in power, which has been the Republicans, they get to dictate the rules of everything, committee, what bills are heard, how okay. they're assigned. They even get to dictate where we sit in the committee hearing. They assign our seats in the committee hearing. Okay. And... I'll, I'll give you one great example. So last year um, in the education committee, I was assigned the seat right in front of Representative Udall, who's the chairwoman. Okay. And I was surrounded by all the Republicans. There's eight Republicans and five Democrats. And I remember sitting in this chair uh, in front of her because it's two rows. And I looked and I saw all my colleagues on the other end of the room, uh -huh. which is really interesting. And I knew immediately that she was employing a teacher tactic. Uh, one of my teachers said it's proximity to the teacher, something mm -hmm. like that, because I'm considered the bad student and Miss Udall is in fact a teacher. 
And I think indirectly, and this is a belief of mine, although I've not confirmed it, is that she thought that by putting me so close to her and Republicans, that somehow that would potentially intimidate me into shuddering and maybe being more quiet. Mm-hmm. Of course, it didn't work. Um, so this year, uh, she moved me, and she moved me all the way to the other end, so complete opposite end. So now I, she employed a different tactic, which like, let's just get her get to her the back away. of the room. Yeah. Let's get her away, as far away as possible, um, which I think is really entertaining. I and mean, there's like a whole, there's a whole behind uh, the scenes story that I could go on. And this is a tactic that's used to show how much power they have. On Monday in committee, um, like I said, I decided that I'm going to very politely call them on when they are very incongruent. And unfortunately, she is very inconsistent. When people come up and give a testimony during a hearing, uh, if it's someone that they favor, they'll give them more than a minute, a minute and a half, even though they said, you only have a minute. Okay. Uh, when it's someone that is opposed to one of their ideas, they are sure to cut them off as quickly as possible. Again, they employ their tactics of power. Yeah. When I ask a question or make a comment, they're like, you're not asking a question, you're making a comment. But then one of my colleagues will employ the same strategy or tactic or whatever, and they never say anything. So they can go off on tangents, not related to the bill. They can... Um, when we're told to ask questions, they can make comments. So it's very, very inconsistent. So we were in the education committee and uh, I'd been politely raising my hand as a good student and I keep getting ignored and I continue to raise my hand until finally no one has a question or a comment. So she has to call on me. And so she called on me and I said, yes, I have a to the point, which means that I don't have a question uh, somebody made a comment, and so I want to do a to-the-point to that comment. Okay. And it was Superintendent Hoffman who was uh, up. Uh, she had given us a presentation and was really being uh, riddled with questions related to those scholarships that really only benefit. They do benefit some students that are suffering from disabilities, but a majority of them are benefiting high-income wealth communities yeah. that's a lot through the scholarships, allow their kids to go to very private schools, very elite schools. Um, anyway, so I had two to the points. And then when I was done, she was like, was that a question? I go, no, it was a to the point. And then I repeated my to the point. Yeah. And she she was like looking at me and then she's like, well, moving forward, uh, I will only allow questions. And so Representative Cobb um, raised her hand and Udall looked at her and said, is this a question? And Cobb said, well, no, not really, but proceeded to make her comments. Uh And so she's almost done with her comments. And I call a point of order, which means we need to stop. And I said, point of order, uh, Chairwoman Udall, I thought you said we could only ask questions. That is not a question. And then she starts gaveling me down. And then I start talking over her and then she's talking over me. And I think the only thing missing in the, in the gaveling was like, shut the F up. Anyway, and then uh, flash um, or move forward a little bit. Um, we were then listening to a bill and of course I was raising my hand. I was kept getting ignored. And then finally she acknowledged me and she pretty much said, after that last incident, I told you that you were no longer able to 
ask questions and I would not recognize you. And, and it just set off a hole. So yes, I, the long winded wow. response <laughs> to your question is, I am still to some degree yeah. maneuvering through the systems that continually want to keep someone who has a, and it's not just me, it's many of us, a strong voice, right? It happens to the constituents that come and speak on issues that are important. You have legislators that treat them poorly. They use their power um, to remind them who has the power. The same thing happens to me and others. That sucks so hard. <laughs> I feel so upset. Uh, how, so then how do you change that? How, what do you, what can, can be done? You keep pushing you... back against a system of supremacy by using their rules. You know, I continue to remain polite. Um, and, and, and I, I did tell her when she said, no, you are not going to do this. I said, then I will continue to call a point of order until you allow me to represent my constituents. You know, I, I think as either people of color, as women, whatever it is, oftentimes we encounter adversity. And what I have found about, and I can only speak to my experience, and I think we all have different experiences, right? I grew up in poverty, didn't really know I was growing up in poverty. I was undocumented. Oftentimes I was reminded of my other than this, right? Um, being a person of color. Uh, but I think there's, our communities have so much resiliency. We continue to push back against um, injustices. Sometimes we don't even know that we're pushing back against injustices. It's that level of resiliency. And so being in a place of quote unquote power, mm-hmm. perceived power, not yeah. real power, right? Perceived power. I was just, and I think you heard me say this, I was elected just like all my other colleagues. Mm-hmm. So in this space, I'm equal and I refuse to allow them to put me in a position or in a place of not belonging because I do in fact belong there because I was elected just like they were. Right. That still blows my mind. <laughs> that grown adults can treat other adults like like children. Like they I mean, think it will work. You see it with our um, current um, person running oh, our nation. Uh-huh, that guy. Yeah, that guy. I dare not say his name. I have in my lifetime, and I'm sure your lifetime, I have never seen a president behave as he has. And so I think that's at the macro kind of like overarching level. But I think in society, we've seen those things at a micro level, Mm -hmm. right? Those um, transgressions, we've seen them. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that now I think communities are saying no more Mm -hmm. and they're paying attention. There was, I I did notice like for me at least that people sort of felt encouraged to start saying more hateful things or to say, oh, well that guy's doing it and he's in the White House. That means I can do it now. And it's fine because he's up there. There was this this swing of uh, less politeness, and now people are um, going off on whether it's race or sexual orientation or, or gender identity and uh, discrimination. And it, it was really bad, or it still is. What goes through your head to motivate you, because it sounds like this happens pretty often, to not just sit, lay down, I guess? What, what keeps you going? That's a really good question. I think when it happens in the moment, it's that flight fight response. Mm-hmm. And obviously I'm going with the fight, yeah. <laughs> but doing it in such a, I try to do it very respectfully because one of the things in the spaces, and I think what has allowed me to be 
successful, if that's the right word, is that they expect me to be or sound as Latina as I am. I don't know. I know that sounds crazy, right? They're expecting me to get crazy, disrespectful, whatever, whatever view or vision they have of Latino women. Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, I I still, I I maintain my composure because I have been in spaces of supremacy and whiteness, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better word. And I've had to learn how to maneuver as many of us in those spaces. Mm And so I've taken all the tools and strategies that I've learned in my 40 plus years, and I'm using it in the space that is very patriarchal, mm-hmm. very misogynistic, very intense. Uh, and I've never been in this level. It's like, it's like on steroids, the misogyny, the isms, it's, uh, it's really crazy. So I feel like my wanting to fight is the reminder that my time can be and perhaps is limited in this space. So I want to be as proficient and as good of a representative of the communities that are rarely represented well. Um, Another thing that stood out was when we were talking about it, when I, I thought to myself at the time a year ago, oh, I have a year to do this thing. And now it's been a year and I have not done this thing. And that's watch Naruto. So I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. But um, as a parent, look, we could switch over here. Uh, as a parent, ha- has the experience been in the past year? I continue to learn from my kids. Yeah. I think if anything, and you know this, I think as a parent, um, we're just people guiding them through life so they can be amazing little human beings. And then it's very transactional in terms of, oh, that's not the right word. Um, I'm a benefactor of their knowledge and their learning just as much as they have been of mine. And if anything, I think now I'm learning more from my children about uh, whether it's culture, thinking, um, beliefs, just everything. So, I mean, on that, on that level, um, and it's not just my kids, young people in general, I think I'm always, and you see them, I think in the last two years, what I've loved about, uh, serving is actually being present and watching youth standing up and fighting for things like gun safety. Like you have the March for Our Lives kids who Mm. um, have been working really hard and they've changed their tone from, you know, we can't do anything on gun safety, though it is important, but we're going to focus on mental health because we're starting to see challenges in young people dealing with uh, mental health access uh, resources and then we have like the youth from the climate strike, right? And there's this been there's been this huge movement of watching across the world, but in Arizona too. And I had a great conversation with one of the climate strike kids. It was a really great conversation. And I said, you know, sometimes we focus so broadly because um, climate is so broad. There's right. so many aspects of it. And I think if you were to kind of focus on our regional issues. Water in the state of Arizona is a huge problem, and we don't talk about it enough. So for me, I'm learning very much from my children, but I'm also learning from all the activists. And then I'm not even talking uh, the activists on the ground registering voters from the organization of Lucha, Mi Familia Vota. I mean, there's like a whole list of, 
and seeing these young people um, really grow in their power is kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I live, so my son is, is two now, and uh, which he can talk, which is great for <laughs> my patients. And um, he is starting to negotiate, which is, I, for some reason, oversaw that when I thought of being a parent. And I'll say, all right, it's time to go in. And he'll say, two more minutes. And I go, no, no more minutes. So I'll set a timer for another, and he'll go, two more minutes. I, go, I just gave you two minutes. So there'll be times where he's throwing a fit. And I have to relearn patience in a different way. I'm going to give you great advice. Oh, parenting please, advice. Please do. Okay. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> their job is to challenge us mm -hmm. at every level, right? And so I always, you have to give children options that you are happy with. So, like, when he's negotiating, you could say, okay, so I can give you two more minutes or I can give you three more minutes. Uh -huh. But then that's it. Which do you prefer, right? Uh -huh. And and then he he'll obviously go with the higher, like the three minutes, yeah. right? But you have to be very firm, yeah, on that and set the clock. And then be like, okay, I you got to choose two or three. So then that that way they feel like they have choices. If he pushes you again, it's like, no, I gave you this choices, yeah. and this is right because when they're that little, we don't want to be. We want them to continue to be. I always say that kids before the age of five are innovators, they're oh, yeah. scientists, they're artists, they're poets, they're architects, they're all of these amazing things. And the last thing we want to do as parents is take away their capacity to be all of those things. And so we want to mold and shape their ability to be these amazing, independent, healthy human beings. And oftentimes, um, I think, as parents, we become very rushed and a little impatient, so yeah. also guilty here. Um, my daughter, one final story. So my daughter, I think she was like five or six, and um, I didn't want her to have body issues. Like as women, we already have body issues, oh, yeah. right? And I think about myself when I was like her age or a teenager, I was always embarrassed about how I looked in a bathing suit. And, and so I, I didn't want her to have any issues. So when we would go bathing suit shopping, um, and there's so many choices when it comes to kids and bathing suit shopping. So I didn't, I, as a parent, didn't want my daughter to choose like, like a super small bikini because I didn't think it would be age appropriate. Yeah. But I also didn't want to take her choice away from choosing something that she would feel comfortable, but I also didn't want to body shame her. Right. Right. Or make her feel many negative things because I felt discomfort with a little bikini. So I would give her choices. I'd say, okay, so you can go with the one piece or you can go with the two piece. And so she always felt like she had choices. And I think it supported her confidence of herself as a, as a girl and her changing body as it, you know, continued, as she continued to grow. And now I, I'll just tell you, she walks, waltzes around in a, a small bikini, but she's an adult, right? Uh, yeah. And, and whatever i if that's what she chooses to wear then yeah, i cannot say her, anything yeah. it's her choice <laughs> yeah i i definitely agree with the uh the parents feeling rushed because my students will make something out of legos or they'll draw something and they'll show mom or dad look what i did and that i'll have some parents who say oh okay that's pretty cool they just made this thing so to them this is their world like yeah. they did so much to this thing times when i'm i'm feeling uh 
frustrated as a teacher and they go look at this thing and i i also say oh that's pretty cool and they wa- walk off i go no and they come back show me the thing yeah because they do thinking? get hurt yeah, yeah. And, they go, oh. and i i catch myself and i have to I have to call them back i'm the next question was what what are some organizations in the community and you you said a few of them or if there's any individuals doing great work and i think what's really great as, as social media can sometimes be negative you use yours uh, really well in that you highlight a lot of things you're doing. Whereas I remember growing up, because there was no social media, um, the, <laughs> the, the people in power or the people in elected positions, uh, you never knew them unless they were in the news. But we get to see you, our other representatives. Um, yeah, what do you think? What do you think? Yeah, what do you think of my Instagram? I am curious. It's, it's pretty great. Yeah, uh, I love how accessible you are, and you, you, you don't feel like for me when I watch someone who's Hey, I'm in the community, everybody. Like, it's not, oh. it's not fake. You're, you're genuinely having fun wherever you are, whoever you're talking with. And then even the serious uh, things, there was, um, you're with Representative uh, Raquel Duran, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and um, they were talking about this new bill coming up. And even the serious stuff, it's great insight because I visit, I didn't know that was, that event was happening or whatever. So it, social media is really great in connecting us. And I, I think you've, yeah, no, I love seeing the stuff you put up, and um, so I, uh, I think... and then the art stuff. Oh, you, the, the art! Yes, yes. The, Can we talk building. about yeah, that? Yeah, I would love to. So, um, if anyone is curious, there is a really great article written by Laura Dare about the art. So, 2020 this year is the 10-year anniversary of SB 1070, the Papers Please, oh. and so. Uh, we are not celebrating what SB 1070 was, right? It was a very anti-immigration, and there's whole conversations. A lot of the law was struck down by the courts, um, where police officers, well, this part law, this part of the law wasn't. Police officers, if they pull somebody over and suspect whatever, and sometimes just how we look or our mm-hmm. thick accents, uh, can ask us for our papers, our documentation. And if somebody cannot provide that, then they can call ICE, Immigration Enforcement. And so 10 years after, and we were talking about this, 10 years after SB 1070, which had a huge impact, negative impact on Arizona, we lost millions of dollars on economic development and growth because we had thousands of people that left the state. You had thousands others decide not to come to the state. Uh, Internationally, we are uh, seen as an incredibly racist state. I mean, if you go to some parts of the world and you tell them where you're from, they're like, hey, Arizona, Sheriff Joe, also Mm -hmm. racist. So what we wanted to do is 10 years later, so 10 years ago, there were only six Latino legislators. I think we did the numbers right now. 10 years later, there are 23 of us. Uh, you have two former undocumented, like myself and Mr. Chavez. Uh, you have people that are of, you know, um, Arabic descent, Asian, Indian, African-American. Like we have one of the most diverse, our caucus has one of the most diverse um, groups across the United States, our legislature is very diverse. And so I thought, what a great way to celebrate that we are still here. And so I um, had met Carmen Guerrero, who um, has, oh, I forgot, uh, Cultura, 
I'll have to look it up. I can't think of it right now. And so I met with her. Um, she's been in arts and the arts community knows her and her husband, Zarco Guerrero. Um, he's known for his mask and he's known for a lot of the Cesar Chavez um, works that have happened. Anyway, so um, we met and she said, I love this idea. And she convinced many of her artists um, to come and in essence, loan us their art. Mm -hmm. And so we started putting up the artwork on a Thursday before the legislative session began in January. And it was really powerful as you saw on my Instagram. Uh, some of the artwork was really powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, there was one by uh, Mr. Moreno, which is a image of a man on his hand, arm, he has SB 1070 tattooed. You don't see his head, but you see his neck and the noose is wrapped around his neck. Then behind him is the American flag and it's on fire. Mm -hmm. And then his hands uh, are chained by actual um, fencing, uh, barbed wire uh, yeah. fencing, really powerful imagery. And it was a little bit too intense for my colleagues across the aisle. Ask, yeah, how did they take that? Not well. No, yeah. Not well. So um, there was one other strong image by Mr. Moreno as well. It was on fabric, um, black paint on fabric, okay. really huge. And I think it's titled uh, Hate and Racism Alive in Arizona, something to that effect. And it has a skeleton, and the image of the skeleton is pretty clear that he represents, uh, you know, Nazism, and he's yeah. holding a hammer, mm -hmm. and he's grabbing onto a young woman, and it's really powerful, and so that was also too much. So I had to take down any artwork that referenced SB 1070, because, and it's a courtesy to the speaker, because again, they had dictate the rules. They felt that, you know, if he allowed a policy, SB 1070 is seen as a policy to be displayed in the hallways, and that would potentially not stop the Republicans from displaying some policy. Although I think, you know, it's really hard to justify any anti-racist policy that you might want to display. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know. And so the good news is, though, that Though some of the artwork came down off the hallway, it sits in our offices. So Mr. Cano has a piece of art in his office, Mr. Rodriguez and myself. So it's still in the Arizona House of Representatives. Yeah. And there is still a thing that they wrote that we are still here and how SB 1070 really represented a racist way of moving. But we are still here and we are still standing 10 years later. So it's pretty yeah. powerful. It made me kind of proud. Yay, that's fantastic. Yeah. And now there's another bill, right? Do you mind talking about that? There's several. It's, oh, several, yes. Yeah, yeah several, I, can't re but, I can't remember them yeah. all. Um, so I think it was, did I say um, House Bill 2598, the first one? Yeah, so. Um, so we were going to hear that in government. So it's, a, it's kind of SB 1072.0. Okay. And I think I was telling you, we were going to hear it in government, but they pulled it. So in other words, it didn't go through the hearing. I was looking at the status of it. It doesn't look like it has been assigned to, not assigned, it hasn't been put on the agenda to the government committee okay. um, this week or the rules committee from what I could tell. We have this week and next week, so two more weeks where in committee we will hear house bills, just two more weeks. 
um, if those bills are not heard, whatever bills are not heard from the house in the next two weeks, then more than likely the bills are dead. Okay. There's a whole nother process. I won't get into it. We talked about yeah. it. We call them zombie bills, but yeah. I won't go there yet. And, and then after the two weeks, then we'll start getting bills from the Senate coming over to the house. Cause that's what happens. The bills, house bills, uh, will go through the process in the house and they get transferred over to the Senate. They go through the same process in the Senate and then the Senate bills go through their process in the Senate and then they get transferred over to the house. Those are the things that you get to learn about when you watch my Instagram story. Yeah. Anyway, so then, um, so the good news is that bill hasn't been heard, but I think I was telling you about another bill, which is, I think, more dangerous. Yeah. Um, and that is, here's the crazy part. It's Representative Shope. So he is one of two Latino legislators okay. on the Republican side. I just thought I had to throw that in yeah. there. I don't know why. I probably didn't have to, but. It's an interesting I mean, you know, what a great yeah. way to have a Latino Republican drop a bill that's very biased, right. racist, um, attacking our communities again. Um, so it's what we call a HCR. So it would be a resolution. So if it passes out of the House and out of the Senate, and let me also tell you that this is something that Governor Ducey touted in his State of the State address okay. a month ago. So a month ago, when we opened up the legislative session on January 13th, Governor Ducey has the floor of the House, all the representatives, all the senators, all 90 of us, including guests and members from different agencies are there. In his state of the state, he said, Shope is sponsoring a bill, and this is what Arizona wants. And it's this racist bill. I feel like that's important to note. And many of us call this red meat. In other words, they're putting this out there because November of 2020, they were very worried about what's going to happen in the state of Arizona. In other words, they're worried about losing a congressional seat, the Senate seat, right? They're, we have McSally, who was appointed to the seat. Yeah. Uh, you have Mr. Mark Kelly, who's running for the Senate. He actually has a really good chance uh, of getting elected. So that would be the second Democrat. So of the two Senate seats, if we have two Democrats, I don't think we've had that in ever. Yeah. Right? Um, so I think that scares them. Um, the Arizona House of Representatives currently sits at 29, 31, 29 Democrats, 31 Republicans. When I started, when I was elected in 2016, I started mm -hmm. my first legislative session in 2017, there were only 25 Democrats and there were um, 30, I can't do the math, <laughs> 35 uh, Republicans. Yeah. 35 Republicans, right? So we grew our numbers by four in two years, in 2020. And that was a non-presidential year. Let me remind you, mm -hmm. non-presidential years, why that's important is because Democrats tend to vote at lower numbers. Democrats turned out. Yeah. So this election, so they're really worried about losing control of the House of Representatives. Even if by one seat, it becomes 30-30, it changes the game completely. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now at 2931, it has changed the game just slightly. They still have all the power. But at 3030, that would require actual bipartisanship, negotiations, discussions. That doesn't right. happen right now. People would like to think that it happens, but it doesn't. But at 3030, but if you have 31 Democrats and 29 Republicans, then the power shifts, not completely. But again, the discussions look different. Then on the Senate side, we're two seats away. It's 13, 17. 
So the Senate, you know, we have discussions. It may or may not, but even if we gain one more seat, again, it changes the dynamics. Mm -hmm. So that one isn't as exciting. So the, the bottom line is they're really worried about the results of the election on an election that we haven't even had yet. That's yeah. how worried. So what they did is they're introducing this resolution. They're calling it, I'm reading the news release, the Law Enforcement Cooperation Act. Um, and in, yeah, in his, uh, in his uh, release, press release, this referendum is about protecting public safety, preventing bad policy, and supporting the brave men and women of Arizona law enforcement. Reckless sanctuary city policies that impede the ability of our law enforcement to do their jobs have no place in Arizona. This amendment lets the people voice be, voices be heard and gives all Arizonans a chance to dance, to stand up for the rule of law. Let me remind people that we do not have any sanctuary city um, laws yeah. in Arizona. What cities opt to do is they opt to be smart about how they treat people, mm -hmm. right? So if, and I know a lot of people who have been um, arrested by folks like the sheriff's department or our local law enforcement um, because they, I don't know, I'd say they were profiled, but let me pretend that they were not profiled, that they were in their vehicle and didn't come to a complete stop and the law enforcement officer decides to pull them over. Mm -hmm. And actually, I, I do have one story. So um, a landscaper was driving in his vehicle and he gets pulled over by DPS and everyone in the vehicle gets ask for their papers. And of course, they call immigration. Unfortunately, a lot of our communities are unaware that if you're a passenger, you don't have right. to show them any proof of identification, right? Um, especially if you've not done anything. Right. Um, and so it, you know, it allows cities to decide, okay, and some cities do, some cities don't. I mean, it depends. It really depends on law enforcement, but we do not have any sanctuary cities currently yeah. at all. Um, and so if it does pass, um, more than likely it has a 99.9% .9 chance of passing. And why is that? Because if it's Governor Ducey's top agenda item that he brought up in the state of the state, then he's going to work to make sure that it passes yeah. out of the House and the Senate. If it passes out of the House and the Senate, it becomes a resolution, which means that it goes to the voters in November. And the reason they want this to go to the voters is because they want to rile up their base. Uh, they want to, and even some Democrats, right? Um, because I feel like a lot of people, the word sanctuary cities has been, I don't even know what the right word is. I don't even know what the right word is. Um, anyway, and so you rile up the base. Um, you get people to vote. What most people don't understand is that this is really a bad law um, because we don't have any sanctuary city um, in the state of Arizona. Right. Um, we have, you know, SB 1070, like we have all of these terrible laws. Um, it's going to hurt potentially our economy again, right? Because what's the message it's sending? And can I just, I, I feel like people fail to understand that just because we look brown, Right. Does not mean we're here without permission. A majority of people were actually born here um, in, in Arizona, in the United States. Right. We have a lot of families that are mixed status, but the percentages continue to decrease because of these hard immigration laws that are now being um, pushed by our federal government mm -hmm. as well as our local governments. Like, I mean, don't I don't even know. 
Uh, anyway, so what most people don't understand is that the voters vote yes on any resolution, on any, on any ballot initiatives, any initiative that is put to the voters. If voters vote yes, and if it passes, moving to the future, again, any ballot, I'm, it's not just this one, any ballot initiatives, moving to the future, the Arizona State Legislature cannot change the law, and if it does, it requires 75% of our vote. So mm -hmm. 75% of the House, 75% of the Senate, which is nearly impossible to get. Yeah. And then to change it, all we can do is improve the language of the law. So in other words, if the sanctuary city bill passes, um, the only changes we can make are to improve the intent. I'm sorry, not the language, the intent of the law. Okay. So in other words, making it harder, harsher for immigrant families because then that would improve the intent. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, and the only way to get rid of a rule like that, a law like that, is to put it back to the voters mm -hmm. and have them vote it down. Yeah. But anyway. So the only way to stop it is hopefully people vote for it, but then they're thinking it will. It's, I think that's why um, I always say, if you don't understand a ballot initiative well, Sometimes the safest vote is no. Yeah, I feel pretty crummy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. So we have another potential ballot initiative. Yeah. Change it up a little, a little bit. Let's talk about cannabis. Yes. Weed. Yeah. Thoughts on it? I, I was going to say I love it. Uh, I, I, think, <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think it should be legal. Okay, so yeah. here, here's a learning opportunity for Mr. Lobo. Have you been asked to sign... Did I say your name? No. Oh, okay. Wait, no, <laughs> You're that's, my, that's my regular face. No, <laughs> I always just look like that. Yeah. He looked at me like, what? Anyway, okay, so have you been asked to sign a ballot in it to put something to the voters to recreation yes. marijuana? And did you sign? Yeah. Bad idea. No. Yes. Why did I do why, why was no, because idea? because you know somebody comes up to you and they're like, "Hey, do you want to legalize uh, That's um, what they said to marijuana use?" And you're like, "Yes, absolutely." Yeah. Folks, read the fine print. Oh, no. So this ballot initiative, what it does is it was here. Let me a little voter education. Let me pull it back. And I'm uh, not the expert. Let me just all let you know about that. But this is just basic basic information. So we legalized medical cannabis like over 10 years. Mm -hmm. And there's like about 130 licenses in the state of Arizona. And there's a whole process of how to go through the licenses, which means it made it harder for everyday people like you and I to have access to those licenses, mm -hmm. right? So you have people with power, money, who got access. Um, and some people who got lucky, a little bit lucky. Um, there's only about 90 of those licenses that are used. So in the state of Arizona, if you have a license to hold, um, to have a medical dispensary, I call it the trifecta because a license gives you the privilege, the right to dispense it, to grow it, and to also uh, produce it, right? That, that's like a, that is a lot of power in the hands of one license owner. Mm -hmm. So I've heard that in the state of Arizona, some licenses have sold for as high as $30 million, low key. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so when we think about and when we talk about um, cannabis, marijuana, which communities have been the most impacted by incarceration, black punishment, brown. black and brown yeah. communities? So <clears throat> this initiative claims to have some social justice. It does not. So what you signed on to 
is the legalizing of cannabis that gives the industry to the hands of the people that already have control of it, which is corporate cannabis industry. I don't know the percentage, but you have folks like, I think, Cureleaf, Mad Men, and Harvest. And I know one of them um, is not doing well. I think it was Mad Men. But Harvest, um, they're like the main, they're the ones that are rolling this out. So in the initiative that you signed, potential ballot initiative, uh, they, those 130 license owners, have uh, first right of refusal. Who's going to refuse? Now they're going to have the dispensing of medical, the dispensing of recreational, the growing, and the and the producing. Yeah, that is a lot That's of power. power. And um, and the money, a large portion of the money goes to law enforcement. Yeah. <laughs> and infrastructure. Infrastructure is important. Don't get me wrong. Um, we don't put enough money in our infrastructure, but that's because the state legislature has failed to invest in our infrastructure. But so we're giving um, money from the sales. We're not putting it a very less than 7% goes to helping people um, deal with addictions. Mm-hmm. Very, so health, health related. Um, also, maybe health education, because, you know, we don't want anyone under 21 using cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Um, My my point is, so a large, like 31, 30% of the money is going to law enforcement. So so then what happened to getting signatures? So they're they're on their way of getting a lot of signatures. um, And I think they have to have over 250, 70,000 signatures, which if somebody says, hey. Yeah, that sounds pretty great. It sounds great. You're like, yes, yes, we want to legalize. Um, and then they throw something like, oh, we even have expungement, but they don't. They don't have true expungement. Uh, the state of Arizona expungement is so if you were arrested for um, for a marijuana conviction, yeah. not a felony, so possession of marijuana. Um, in the state of Arizona, we don't have a thing called expungement, which it means it would be complete removal of the of the record of the criminal record. Uh, we have a set aside. So you can go through the process of having your record set aside, but it's still public record. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a problem. I, and I don't know the numbers. I think, I don't recall the numbers, but I think on average, it seems really high, 18,000 people a year are arrested for marijuana possession. Oh, that seems really high. Yeah. Well, then, I'll have to so confirm then what, that. Yeah, no, that's... Uh, so what do we do? Yeah, so what do we do? So right now in the find that clipboard. Yeah, in the Arizona State Ledge, um, there's several of us, like I think I'm dropping a cannabis legalization bill. So the bottom line is we need to do it at the Arizona State Ledge. Yes. Uh, the reason the ballot initiative is bad is because what did you just learn about ballot initiatives? If it passes, then it would require seventy-five percent of Arizona voters, or excuse me, it would require seventy-five percent of the House and the Senate to agree to the changes of a ballot initiative. Mm-hmm. And the only changes that we can make are to improve the intent of the law. So if this law legalizing cannabis only limits the number of, of, um, oh my God, of licenses to the current license owners, we are literally growing their power and creating oligopolies. So we wouldn't be able to break apart their oligop- oligopoly or if we were to add more licenses, they would get first right of refusal, more than likely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, we can have a whole discussion around this. It, it would just make it, 
I don't know. I just don't think it's a good idea. Um, I think one of the concerns is the Arizona State Legislature representatives and senators haven't gotten it right because it's been managed by a very specific political ideology over the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. If it's true about 2020 and there being a shift in the people who represent us, if it is more Democrats that represent us, um, I would say almost most of us, not all of us, most of us agree in the legalizing of adult use cannabis. So we would be much more thoughtful and responsible of what that looks like, including things like social justice components, mm -hmm. uh, making sure that the money is going where it needs to go, um, you know, making sure that, um, and, and I haven't figured out the licensing because it, it is a capitalism thing, right? I, I'm still figuring that out. But the thing is that we, the state ledge, could make those shifts and adjustments as we learn about the industry. Mm -hmm. And the medical cannabis industry has been ignored, not fully, but mostly because my colleagues across the aisle are like, oh my God, it's a gateway drug, mm -hmm. right? They don't even want to talk about cannabis. Like you can, we can no longer ignore what is out there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so um, I would encourage anyone, if you are approached by someone about legalizing cannabis, ask them tough questions, ask them where's the money going. Yeah. If you're okay with uh, creating a, an oligopoly, that's uh a small number of business owners have, you know, a majority control of a industry, then you go for it and sign it. If you think the money should go to law enforcement, like 30% of it, then, you know, then go forth. Or we be patient and wait to do true, authentic, real social justice um, legalizing of cannabis. Yeah. Well, Pie in my face. Uh, <laughs> Always well, ask questions. Heard, yeah, shoot. Um, so you said there's some um, House representative uh, chairs or positions that are being elected, right? There, there are some people that, that can't, Democrats. So we're that, all up for re-election. Oh, you're all up? All of us. All of us. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. No, all of us are up for re-election. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, you, I, you know, honestly, I, so I, that's a great I'm question. I'm here, so I always feel like everything so, is the end of the world. So you know, um, you know, we you always hear this thing term limits, right? Yes. And um, I struggle with term limits um, a little bit. The problem is not term limits. The problem is money in politics. That's a problem. Yes. Okay. So if we were to fix money in politics, then it would look different. The other problem is that um, voters aren't asking tough questions of the people that. Um, represent them, mm -hmm. right? You should hold us all accountable. I don't care if I'm a Democrat or if there's a Republican. If you're a Democrat, I'm a Democrat. You still should hold me accountable, right? You should still ask me tough questions. Mm -hmm. Don't assume that I represent you well. I mean, I do, but what I'm saying is, Kirsten yeah. Sinema is a great example. Okay. Senator Sinema is a great example, right? She identifies as Democrat. And to me, it's not a Democrat-Republican thing. It's like, how do we want the person representing us? Like, right? We, and I think we've reached, it's like a whole, it's like a whole nother conversation. It's like we reached this point in, um, in politics where we need people to be critical thinkers. Yes. Where we need people to really represent the people. But because of money and politics, uh, you have politicians that maybe lose sight of that because of our egos, of our narcissism, mm -hmm. because we love the power, right? Yeah. And the attention, and we lose sight of why we're in the position. Mm -hmm. 
like for me, yeah. no offense to our current congresswoman, um, I had a really hard time voting for her. Yeah, she had a D behind her name, but I knew. I mean, the fact that she was on a list, I think I saw this on CNN or something, of Democrats that would cross party lines on the Trump oh, yeah. um, conviction. WTF. Yeah. Like, think about that. And that's not a Democratic or Republican. I mean, I don't know if you heard um, Senator Mitt Romney's speech on why he yeah, voted bit. to convict. Yeah. Right? That is that is really, I give him kudos. Mm-hmm. He really was thoughtful and had to separate. We need more of that. Yeah. And anyway, so the fact that she was on that list of, like, actually crossing party lines, like, we should be go- going. And it's not even crossing... It's not that it's because she's crossing party lines. It's because she was given a choice about Donald Trump's guilt. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, it's, it shouldn't be partisan, yeah. right? It should be a real question. And and after he's been acquitted, what it, what does he do? He fires the, yeah. the people and the person who the the brother who wasn't even connected mm-hmm. to anything necessarily fires. Did he learn his lesson, as Susan Collins claimed he would? Oh my! What I heard. Anyway, all right, all right. Dare I digress? Yeah. <laughs> no, he didn't. Uh, um, no, no. Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah, we should push harder. So when you ask a question like two, four years. So for me, serving two years, it's really challenging mm-hmm. because it. I, I'm in. I'm. I'm in my fourth year. I'm starting my fourth year. Mm-hmm. And I finally feel like I'm getting my footing on what I'm doing and how to do it and represent better mm-hmm. and well, right? And it's taken me um, this amount of time for a lot of different reasons. I mean, I think I started getting my footing in it like last year, but definitely, you know, now I'm like, yes, okay, I think I, I get it, right? So so part of me as like any of you, a voter, when I look at the people that represent me, I'm like, ooh, do I really want somebody bad representing me for like four years? So let me break it down. So uh, I had a re-election in 2018. Luckily, I didn't have a primary, which means I didn't have a Democrat running against me. So I didn't have to, you know, I, I didn't have to campaign really hard. I had a Republican running against me um, and Salman in the general. Um, but our district's pretty Democratic. So in 2018, uh, we got elected, so we started last year, 2019, and it's like my it was my only free year technically, okay. um, meaning that I didn't have to worry about campaigns, sort yeah. of, kind of not really, so I can kind of focus on the work. And I, as an elected official, can see the difference, right? And I've seen it in the two terms, like that first year right after you get elected, people can kind of focus on their job. Now I'm in my second year of this term, but it's like campaign season. I'm in a primary. A lot of us are in primaries, both Republican and Democrats. A lot of us, it's clear that we're focused on our campaigns and to make our campaign successful. And I'm generalizing. I'm not saying this is me, people. I like to be very inclusive. That's why I say we. So it's not everyone. I, from a distance, can see kind of like that. Oh, I don't even kind of ugly behind the doors negotiating mm-hmm. of like pushing bills for support yeah. indirectly. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So really as a two year termed legislator, I only have one 
you know, unless I don't have a primary. Right. I only have like one year where I can really, but even if I don't have a primary, I have to worry about everyone else who is in a competitive race because then they're negotiating to keep their power. Right. You know, so negotiating bills and strategy. It's not even a lot of time. Does that make to sense? Do that for, yeah. Yeah. We're worrying about. Yeah. Like, okay, um, I have to vote yes so I can get the wink wink support of mm-hmm. XYZ, ABC. Yeah. Right? And that's why I say money in politics is why we have to get it out. Is there a way to get that? Oh, God. No. I mean, <laughs> two hours. Yeah, no, it's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. Money in politics is really hurting decision making. Because mm-hmm. it would influence anything. It, money influences. To, to vote for your. Many influences. Uh, purpose, yeah. Not all of us. Yeah. You know, um, not all of us. Like, um, but I don't think there's enough um, elected officials willing to go all out and say, no, you know what? This position of power for me is not important. What's important is this. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are a few of us, definitely, definitely, but there's not enough of us that are like, and I, I guess that's how I've, I see my role is, you know, I feel so privileged. Maybe we can wrap up on this. Yeah. I feel so privileged to be serving people. It's such an honor. So when I think of that 10-year-old girl who moved to Arizona, it's when I really acknowledge my my lack of wealth, <laughs> realize that I really didn't belong. Like all of these things, right? Um, the fact that I'm sitting in this place and... Something that I refuse to, you know, as little kids, you deny. My mom cleaned houses. My dad was a carpenter. That was embarrassing. Uh, Knowing and understanding that we were poor and couldn't afford a lot of things, that was embarrassing. Uh, Having to wear, like, the same two or three outfits over and over, that was embarrassing. You know, all of these things, like, all of the stuff that I was ashamed of as a 10, 11, 12, 15, 18-year-old are things that I now embrace and acknowledge. Yeah. And to be that person in this space where I'm embracing my Latinoism, my former undocumented, my my vulnerabilities, and to be able to share that with the people I represent and the most vulnerable communities that deserve to be represented, I'm so proud that I've been able to do that this fourth year. Yeah. And I'm running for Senate in LD26, and if voters decide that I'm a good representative of that, then they'll vote me into office. And if not, then, you know, we'll continue to do really great work. It just will look different. I'm not defined by my seat, I guess. And some people I think who run into politics, unfortunately, think that they are in fact the position. Yeah. We're temporary stewards of a position and we forget that. Yeah, I hate how Amazing you are with words. Um, <laughs> that was beautiful. Um, if you have time, we could do the random question. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, how do you get in the way of your own success? Oh my gosh, that is typically I hate these questions. Oh no, okay. No, well, no, 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 but no, but I love this oh, okay. question. No, I love this question because I've been I'm struggling with um, and I've been having conversations around this. I and I'm sure many of uh, people can relate to this. Um, is the fear of asking for things. Um, kind of like what you were saying earlier, right? It's just this fear of, so like in my case, what has definitely, what I acknowledge and recognize is that it's not that I don't trust people. It's just that I feel like I'm not deserving enough 
to ask for a favor yeah. or to ask for things or something. Uh, like when you're running a campaign, it feels very uncomfortable to ask people for money. Mm-hmm. And that is, it's the asking. And somebody said it to me, actually a couple of people were like, oh my God, Isela, people want to help you. You just have to ask. Yeah. And it's just that. And I think that's part of like um, how I grew up and many of us grow up, right? It's just, I don't know if it's this uh, belief that we're not worthy enough to ask. Mm-hmm. I hear you because my mom, my mom did that a lot where she would, she's pretty much instilled, don't say anything, my kid. Don't do it. So even at the grocery store, if the tag is not on the thing, they go, we'll do a price check. I, go, I don't need it. Just forget it. I don't need the help. I don't, it's fine. Just, I don't. Yeah. And it's disregarding because I, I feel that I don't deserve it. Even, yeah, even exactly. at work, I'll do all the lesson plans, all the stuff by myself. And then one of my, my assistants will say, well, why didn't we do this activity? I say, oh, I, I didn't get it. Why didn't you just ask me to go get it? Or why didn't you ask me? I know where that stuff is. I don't know. I just have been taught not to ask for help. And it's, yeah, it's something I gotta work on. Um, what can you talk all day about? Oh, um, gosh, uh, so many things. So I can talk to people about most anything, yeah. <laughs> actually. Yeah, um, really anything. Um, give me a topic. Anything I can tie um, our economy to workers. Let's talk about workers really quick. We need to start valuing workers. Workers are economic drivers of Mm -hmm. our society, right? And I think we've been sold a bunch of bullycock. Is that the word? We can make it a word. Okay. That's fine. Uh, And what I mean by that is, you know, we've been told that um, businesses are the ones that are the job creators. Oh, yeah. So I can have a whole conversation of like, no, you know who the job creators are? You and I, why? Because if we are employed, earning good wages, knowing that we have basic protections, knowing that we have health care, knowing that we have a retirement plan to fall back on, we spend money. And if we spend money, we increase demand. And if we increase demand, we increase, you know, supply and, right. and jobs. We're the ones that create jobs. It's really, uh, so I'm going to have a whole conversation with people about what it really means to be a economy that is not driven by the job creators, corporations. The job creators are the people who are respected, mm-hmm. that are getting good wages, right? Um, yeah, no, I could talk about anything. I, um, yeah, anything. Yeah, give me a topic. That's, that's a pretty good skill. <laughs> um, does hardship make a person stronger? And if so, under what conditions or at what point is it too much hardship? Oh like what God. really molds... That's a great question. Ooh. So we talked about resiliency, mm-hmm. um, built around our adversity, mm-hmm. but now, and I think every generation looks a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So right now I kind of worry about my kids, right? Mm-hmm. They're like 24, just turned 24 and 21. And, uh, I worry about, they have, they're very resilient. I think they will do really well. But can we really do well in a society that has been built to give all the power to certain groups? I'll give you an example. Arizona is becoming harder and harder for people to live in and afford Mm -hmm. a home or an apartment. The cost of living in an apartment, especially in my legislative district, which is Tempe, North Tempe and Mesa, is outrageous. Uh, There's an apartment 
uh, like newer apartments that are costing $1,500 for one apartment. Go somewhere with that. What in the world? Yes. Right. Or even $1,200. Mm-hmm. Then you have people that are having, like I received an email from a woman. She said, I moved into this apartment complex. It's one of the cheapest apartments complex that I could afford. This was in Mesa, part that I represent. But then within a few months, they started charging her fees, fees that were unexpected, were not part of her agreement, uh, valet for trash. Yes, you put your, yes, I kid you not. No, and this is what people don't, we don't know this, right? So in Arizona, we have all of these laws that are, that favor um, uh, not the tenant, but the uh, landowner, the Mm -hmm. uh, the renter. Um, And, and, and now, so I think people are incredibly resilient, but I think that we have so many challenges, right? So even though I grew up in poverty, I still got um, access to free meals at school. Mm -hmm. So an adversity of that was, yes, I had access to a free meal, but when I was a kid, I had to pick up a specific, in only one school district, it didn't happen in other school districts, I had to pick up a specific colored lunch ticket that pretty much told everyone that I was a free and reduced. That was freaking embarrassing. Yeah. You know, when you're in middle school. You, yeah. So um, my adversity was poverty, right? I became, res- I'm resilient and there was a rule that allowed me to get free lunches, but then uh, in district policy that made it, so I would not eat, right? So, cause of a, right? So I guess what I'm trying to say is we can all overcome and be very resilient. And that experience, I wouldn't say made me resilient. It made me really soak in my shame and embarrassment of my poverty. You know, however many years later, 30 some odd years later, I take that moment and, you know, it has shaped me. Right. So it's, that adversity has made me. If there are rules and laws that are set up against communities, we can be as um, resilient as possible, but then, you yeah, know, so then, yeah, you hit a eventually wall. the yeah. adversity. Yes. And yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Except. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to think about it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, would you rather go back to age five with everything you know now or know now everything your future self will learn? Does that make sense? No. What was I drinking? No. Um, <laughs> so would you rather go back to age five? Uh-huh. With everything you know right now, uh-huh. or Ooh, okay. know everything you're going to know in the future right now. Oh, um, that's a good question. No, I don't think I would know because I think when you're five, you just want to be and naiveness. Yeah, the naiveness of 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 people and intent and just being. So now, right? I would rather have like the knowledge of my future self now. Yeah, then, okay. Yeah. That makes, yeah, a little kid knowing. No, right? No, because then I would hate the world. Yeah. I mean, only because like, I, I still anticipate the best of people, mm-hmm. but damn, when I look at our state, if I had known at even 10 that I was growing up in a state, no, no, I'll go back to 2006, there was all these anti-immigration bills. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to my sisters and voting. I'm like, no, there's no way people are going to vote for this. Like I, you know, like I really, in my heart believed people would be smart. And it was the disallowing um, non-resident students to receive in-state tuition. Right. And I just thought, I'm like, God, anyone can see that, you know, education is the access to safer communities and all these wonderful things. 
oh my God. And when it came back that it was voted in favor of over 70%, yeah. like it hurt my heart. Because even as a 30 something year old, I was expecting the very best mm-hmm. of the people in my community and they failed me. Yeah. And then Sheriff Joe continued to get. So no, I would rather no. have my yeah. five-year-old self be really sweet, innocent, naive. Yeah. But now I would like to have all the knowledge and experience yeah. of my future self. Um, if you could switch two movie characters, what would be a really weird switch from Ooh. two movies? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, I feel like I haven't seen movies in a while. So two movie characters, switch movie characters. Strange switch. Oh, I don't know how to answer that. Hmm. So different perspective. Okay. Did you see the movie with Emma Stone, The House? Emma Stone, where she's a reporter reporting on the racism in the oh, South. No. The help. No. Yes. The help. Yes. I would actually would have liked to have switched. Like if you switch the roles of the people of color being in those positions. Studio reporters. To be like the no, to be the the the, the people being the oh. racist. Oh. Right. That would be. Right, because then that would create like a whole different conversation. Yeah. It reminds me of I went to this training and I saw this video just to give you perspective. Um, it was made in the Netherlands, I think. Denmark, the Netherlands, one of those very um, Scandinavian countries. And the video was a classroom of white children. And the and I, I couldn't understand because it was in their language and the teacher in front. Okay. And then, you know, they're in the classroom and they're obviously learning something and then they go to the, the playground and then there's this one kid who feels very uncomfortable with whatever learning is happening. Then they go to the playground and in the playground, um, they're having to line up and then they look over at the kid who's clearly very uncomfortable with whatever's happening. Okay. And then the teacher tells the, the, and they're all white, the white girl to kill the kid who's like, feeling discomfort. The commercial was centered around um, uh, child soldiers. Yeah. And so it sparked this intense conversation because most of the people in this room that I was with um, identified as white, right? But if you had shown that same video of the ch- actual child soldiers that are happening currently in Africa. Mm-hmm. It'd be a radically different. The yeah. emotion would have not been as intense. Mm-hmm that it was for this room full of white souls, souls that identify as white, seeing white children. Yeah, so I guess that's yeah, my that would be, yeah. <laughs> and then, conversation. Yeah. I don't know. Last one. Uh, what's the most, what's something uplifting happening in the world? Ooh, God, I shouldn't take so long to answer. That was all Even in the community, it doesn't have to be. Oh, world. yeah, well, I we think, so for it's me, good. yeah, so for me, I think what, continues to give me hope is and I think we talked about this is really seeing young people mm-hmm. being more engaged and involved yeah and then just seeing like over the last uh, couple of years I've gotten to know a lot of young people and they went from not being at all involved to like they're knocking on doors they're registering voters they're asking tougher questions I think it's that generation, that millennial beyond generation, mm-hmm. 
that are going to be really, I'm hoping like the critical thinkers uh, that are really going to, I hope be really ethical and more like really challenge systems. Mm -hmm. So that, that's what kind of gives me hope. I think yeah. that brings me happiness, but right now it, a lot of shit feels kind of cruddy. Oh, it feels very cruddy. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know how you, I don't know how you can like, like, I think if I had like a two year old now, I would be like, Oh my gosh. I'm so scared. I would be afraid. I'm so scared trying to teach him wrong and right and how people should be treated and I, I yeah no I'm genuinely afraid but I mean no 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 but you yeah yeah explode if you, yeah no so little client so my kids pretty much told me like um I don't think I'm gonna have kids and me 10 years ago would have been like a typical Mexican mom like no like continue now I'm like I can understand and respect your decision yeah. like it makes me sad but that those are conversations this generation's having, right? Because they're very worried. They're like, how can I bring a child into this world if we don't even know if there's going to be a world that exists, right? Because right? of climate, which, right, we're all focused on all this other stuff, but climate, man. And I, and I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that is. And water, Arizona doesn't have water. We talked about it. Like we're, yeah. anyway, so it's, ah, it is a lot. Anyway, but, but I'm still hopeful. <laughs> but it's great that young, young people are. Yeah, Isn't yeah. That, it should be a, a sign of change. Yes. Hopefully. Yeah. Yes. They're definitely going to be much better than I think uh, our generation. It's not you because you're part of that millennial generation, but like the, the Gen Xers and the boomers, right? Where mm -hmm. they're not necessarily going to like fall in line. They're, you know, it, it just looks different. Their world looks really different. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that they will. I tell them currently in the state ledge, all I can do is like stop the bleeding. You guys are going to come, have to come and actually save the patient. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank I, you. I really appreciate it. Ten years later, so ten years ago, there were only six Latino legislators. Mm -hmm. I think we did the numbers right now. Ten years later, there are 23 of us. 